Hi, it's Tuesday evening. A little bit late, but um, I want to thank our sponsors for um, tonight's uh, bio, which is uh, Alan Janet Abramowitz, who very uh, kindly are sponsoring uh, two podcasts this week. Alan's doing it uh, in memory of his father, Irving Abramowitz, who died not long ago. Who uh, I'm going to be speaking tonight about Rabbi Bernard Illoway, who's one of the early pioneers of um, Orthodox Judaism, actually in America in the 19th century. And uh, Irving Abramowitz, the later Irving Abramowitz, was a kind of a well known figure in Baltimore. He was a little bit of a pioneer also in the world of the federations uh, way back when, uh, at a time when um, you had to fight to get a kosher. <laughs> <laughs> to get a kosher meal at a Federation event. I mean, isn't that funny? Uh, we'll find that our hero tonight is going to be like that also. Um, and so, a very interesting person in uh, Baltimore history. And uh, uh, pay tribute to his memory. And with that, I uh, will segue into the person I'm going to speak to tonight. Um, Rabbi Dr. Bernard Illoway, in the 19th century. He was a rabbi in Baltimore for a while, but in a bunch of other places as well. And uh, without any further ado, I'll get right down to business. This is somebody who lived in America, held many different pulpits in different towns. And he turned a very interesting uh, person. It's, a, it's a, a tragic story, I guess, based on the fact that American Jewish history, especially in the 1800s, is full of a lot of would have, could have, should have, you know, but never happened. And Illy's one of the best examples. So Rabbi Rice in Baltimore is one. This guy's another one. So our hero was born in um, Bohemia, which is where Prague is, uh, in 1814. So he died in 1871. So what does that mean? He was in his 50s when he died. Was not an old man at all. Okay? Uh, was not an old man at all. And he died actually from what we would call today an automobile accident. At that time, it was a horse and wagon. You know, that kind of accident. Otherwise, he probably would have lived longer. Uh, this is somebody born in Kolin. In Bohemia, that's a small, a very important Jewish community of yesteryear. Colin, Bohemia is a place I know I'd say to a lot of people, you don't know what I'm talking about. Today called the Czech Republic. Bohemia is an area that had a long Jewish history. I mean, a long Jewish history. Everybody's heard of Prague, but chances are most people have not heard of the other small communities, which are much smaller, scattered across Bohemia, which in Jewish history actually mattered. So if you go there today on a trip, to the Czech Republic, one of the things they'll take, if you want to, one of the things they'll do, they'll take you to these towns you never heard of, and you find the Shach is buried here, and this one's buried there, and this one's buried there. They say, what the heck's going on over here? And where did these old people all come from? And I'm telling you, in small Bohemian communities, I don't think things were fantastic, but you had uh, quite a, a set over the centuries of impressive Jewish scholars. Now, our hero is from Colin which might be the second or third important community in Bohemia after Prague. Um, it was a place, believe it or not, that a small community had yeshivas. Uh, important ones once upon a time. Flecklis was there for a while. Um, you know, the Chubmeyavo. Other people were there uh, of that sort. And even into the 1800s, I remember this. <clears throat> I forget the guy's name, Cutter or something like that. There were um, Rabbanim you never heard of who were famous in their day. They had these small yeshivas of 10, 15 guys, uh, well into the 1800s. So our hero grew up in a small town, but it was a very Jewish town. 
his grandfather had been the rabbi there, the great-grandfather, something like that. So he came from a rabbinic family. Uh, father was a Talmud Chacham, not a rabbi. And if it's 1814, he's coming up in the early 1800s, obviously. So that means 1820s, you know, he's 10 years old in 1824, 1820s, 1830s. And his family, let's put it this way. By the time we're talking about the uh, joint efforts of the Maskilim on the one hand and the Austrian government that ruled Bohemia on the other had made it a situation that it's not possible to have extreme cultural insularity of Torah only. Limudichol was like a must governed by the government, in, imposed by the government. And since it was pushed in so hard, the Jews were macabalet. The question is, did you let the Limudichol affect your Yiddishkeit. That's what it boils down to. And this is a whole very interesting little subject for specialists. Uh, Bohemia Moravia in the 1800s. And in all these little towns, it's really fascinating from a human being perspective, even though overall we're dealing with small numbers of people. But uh, it's very interesting you look at these biographies in the 19th century, you know, which people remained Shomer Shabbos, which ones did not. Uh, it's not necessarily a function of the kind of secular education you got. Everybody's going, for a while, they went to these Jewish uh, elementary day schools, but all the high schools were Christian. And a lot of people stayed religious anyway. A lot of them did not. And this actually lasted a very long time into the 1800s. Uh, it collapsed, I would say, in the second half of the 1800s, Bohemia, and in Moravia in the very late 18, early 1900s. And in, in Moravia, it stayed even longer. So it's just very uh, interesting. But if you find the front person from that area, you're not going to find somebody who's culturally insular. You'll find somebody who has a secular education or knowledge of some sort or another, plus is into learning at his front. Get it? Now, if you move to a province or two over into Poland, you can find people, Hasidim especially, who are little, still in the Middle Ages um, and proud of it. And Bohemian that. Our hero comes from a family that therefore modernized the sense of secular knowledge, but it was from. And they took learning very seriously. By his time, there was a small yeshiva, as I said before, in Kolin. Um, and, as, you know, you see Goyim everywhere that checks, but here's this is an interesting Jewish community. And when he's a teenager, they send him to Yeshiva Gadola. What does that mean? Pressburg, the Chassam Sofer. If he's born in 1814... Means he was 25 when the Chassam Sofer died. So I would say from the age of 12, 13, whatever, I don't know how many years, well, a good number of years, he learned in Pressburg. So he got a heavy dose of Chassam Soferism and a heavy dose of uh, learning. Everything goes along with it. But the Chassam Sofer had a large yeshiva, including kids from what we would call today Hasidic and less westernized areas and boys from more westernized years, our hero would be one of the boys from a more westernized era. Okay? So, it's not a question whether you can speak German or not, they speak German. You know, it's how it goes. Fine, let it be. Now, uh, I think he even ended up getting Smich, which means he was there a fair amount of time. So he knows how to learn. Um, now, if he's born in 1814, so, this is the last years of Chassam Sofer, 1835, 1836, 1837, something like that. Um, after that, this is just very interesting. After that, he goes off to college. I told you before, you had guys like this. 
In his case, he'll go to the University of Budapest because the Hungarian universities were the schwachest in Europe. <laughs> it's the truth. Uh, I don't even think you need a PhD. I don't think you need a uh, dissertation to get a PhD or something like that. I forget. There's an article that's discussed. The guy went into this in detail. The, the hung, going to a, a Hungarian university was more or less, you know, like going to a, the University of Montana for Jewish studies, you know, like that. So, um, nevertheless, a doctorate is a doctorate. So, you end up with a guy. This is really early on. We're talking about the 1840s. Who's a rabbi doctor. But I'm not done. Then he does something which I find very interesting. And that is, he goes to Italy, to Padua. What's in Padua? They would call Collegio Rabbinico. In Padua, in Italy, by the time I'm talking about, Yiddishkeit was sufficiently schwach that the best you could come up with was a kind of a um, theological seminary, which was orthodox, but obviously very modern. And the head of it was Shadal, Shmuel Dabal Lutzato, who was not a gon or anything like that. I learned a little bit. He was mainly an Ivrit guy, an archmoskil. Now, Shomer Torah he was a weirdo, a very big weirdo. Nowadays, there's a little bit of a Shadal revival I see among some. He was a super expert in Ivrit. I'll say again, he knew how to learn something, but that's not what he was famous for. And so you didn't go. I mean, it's a little bit weird that a graduate from Sam Sofer will go to Shadal. The answer is he wanted to round out his education. I find it very interesting. He said, Gemara and Shulchan Aruch I learned in Pressburg. Haskalah, I want to learn in a professional place um, by a guy that actually knows what he's talking about. And it won't be anti-form. And so... If he was in Padua, I'm sure he studied Tanakh very closely, uh, Ivrit very closely, those kinds of things. Uh, maybe philosophy, I don't know. So here's somebody who has an education in three parts. Torah Yisrael, Chachmas Yisrael, which was the Wissenschaft des Judentum, the scientific approach to modern history and so forth. And Geisha stuff, secular education, in a real genuine university, even though by European standards... It was a second-rate university. People don't know this. The Hungarian University for a long time were like second-rate. Later on, they got better. Uh, Sakari Frankel also went to the University of Budapest. There's a reason these ex-Yeshiva guys just said they want to get the doctorate and the heck with it to work, you know. I don't blame them. And so, nevertheless, as rabbis go in the 1800s, you end up in the 1840s because the guy was born in 1814. So he finished, I guess, when he's his late 20s, around 30. So let's say it's 1844. Now he's um, 30 years old. Uh, he comes back with a, with a nice, um, what's the right word? Uh, you know, um, resume. As I said before, yeshiva, he went to the best yeshiva. Pressburg wasn't that part of the world, the best yeshiva. Um, I mean, the chassam's over. Secondly, he went to a genuine European university. Thirdly, he went not to some, some Moschilica dude in the Velterai. He went to a, a, a place that was like the first of the seminaries in which uh, 
Chacham Sisrael, Jewish history, Jewish culture, was taught in a systematic fashion. And even though the teachers were autodidactic, but they had a real curriculum in the school. And so that's what happened, right? That is what happened. Now, what do you do now? Well, in 1845, when he was 31 years old, he got married. You might tell me it's a little bit old. This is the time when basically, you know, he's doing like the round bum. You got to make a parnosa before you get married. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying that's what he obviously did. Because I don't think he had a trouble, you know, getting married. But he wanted to round out his education. It's kind of a modern European sort of notion. Um, but he's a from God. Now he's looking for a position. He goes back to his hometown. Um, I don't remember. Maybe he became the rabbi there or not. This was in the Austrian Empire, where things are very hard to deal with the bureaucracy, where they're very anti-Semitic. All I know is three years later, um, is it's the year 1848, and the whole Austrian Empire broke up in a bunch of revolutions. Uh, I think I did a series. It's on the YouTube, or maybe my team didn't put it up yet. On the 1848-year revolutions and the Jews. Uh, I think I did that. Or maybe I didn't. I don't remember. I did want a Jews revolution, so maybe I talked a little bit about that. If you know anything at all about European history, you'll know that in 1848, a whole bunch of spontaneous revolutions that were uncoordinated broke up all across Europe. In the different Italian states, in France, in the different German states, I think in Belgium and Holland, um, and throughout the Austrian Empire. Now, I know you're not a historian, so you don't know what I mean by the Austrian Empire, but it had a lot of different Medinas in it. And each Medina was a revolution. So there was a revolution in Bohemia. The Czechs tried to establish their own kingdom throughout the Austrians. In Austria, there was a revolution in Vienna of the liberals against the extreme right wing that was ruling the country. In Hungary, there was a big revolution, Kosciut Lajos, where the Hungarians tried to kick the Austrians out. And they succeeded. The Austrians had to help the Russian army, had to ask the Russian army to come in and crush the Hungarians and get back the country to the Austrians. And there were a whole bunch of other ones that need not concern you. But I'm just trying to say that all of Europe was convulsed in revolutions. Now, eventually, these revolutions did not succeed. The right wing rallied and crushed the revolutionaries. Not overnight, it took about a year or two, but that's what happened. That's the famous Emperor Franz Josef came in as a crusher of the revolutions at the age of 18. All right. In our case, the story is that our hero, Rabbi Dove Illoy, Rabbi Bernard Illoy, was accused of sympathizing with the revolutionaries. They say he made a speech when the revolutionary army came in. Who knows? Anyway, he got on the black book of the authorities. And as a result, he's not going to get a Stella in the Austrian Empire. Which must have been frustrating as all heck, because I'll tell you what. He did whatever it takes to get a big rabbinical position. Number one, he wasn't from God. Number two, he had to learn. Number three, he had a genuine university PhD. That's what the Austrian government, all these European governments were looking for. A person with culture. with He's not just a, a Jewish behemoth. And number four, he knows the Haskalah stuff because he studied under one of the great Muskeln, even though he was a Shomotor Mitzvah. So it sounds like a very good resume. And a guy like him, if not for the politics, I think would have become Chief Rabbi of Prague, which was a very special position. And maybe Vienna. 
I mean, he certainly had the education. And as we'll see, one of the things he did, and maybe he picked this up in Padua, he developed an excellent uh, speaking ability, oratory. Excellent speaker. So that ought to do the trick. Matter of fact, most of the speakers of the type I'm talking about were not so from. He's a from guy. But it didn't work. Now, all these events happened in 1840, 1849. It takes him a couple years to realize it ain't going anywhere. I think he tried to get a job in Germany next door. But the German states had crushed the revolutionaries and they had their black list. And he was on it, so he couldn't get accepted. You understand what I'm saying? In Germany, you could come for a tryout, a, a, a probe, and he would hit a home run. And the Cahill would say, oh, we want you. And even offer him a good salary. And then they say, of course, we just have to get the okay from the police and the authorities. And the okay would say, oh, Illaway, forget it. He's on the blacklist. He's a communist. He's a socialist. He's a revolutionary. Heck with him. Then the Jewish community would say, sorry, bud, we were okay, but the authorities say no, and we can't do anything without the approval of the government, of the, of the king, of the government. And so here's a guy that's very frustrated. Because wherever you go, as I said, a guy like that is really made for a German-speaking communities, Central European communities. He's an excellent orator in um, German, of course. Obviously can speak Yiddish, too. Um, he's learned other languages. New French, Italian, after all, he started in Italy. He's a highly educated type dude. And he is a Talmud Chacham, as I said before. Look, the guy got smicha from Pressburg. You know, he had to pass tests. So he was a Talmud. He knows his, his, his Shulchan Aruch. But don't worry. What do you do? In those days, the thing to do, my friends, is go to America. Why? Because in America are dozens of German-speaking communities. By the time we talk about it, in the early 1850s, he came to America in 1853. You come to America in 1853, it's in the middle of a huge wave of German Jews moving to America, mainly from Bavaria. Baltimore, Maryland, New York, Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Boston, you know, Richmond, New Orleans, you name it. The country's filling up in the 1840s and 50s especially with German Jews. So wherever you go in America, the big demand is for a, a, a guy who can speak well German, give sermons and joke like that in German. So it's ironic. You want to come to New York to get a stella, we can speak German. But that's what he did. Now, because he's a good speaker, um, and he's highly educated and all the rest of it, and he was a, a pakeach, you know what I mean? So, um, now to get along with people, so he never had trouble getting positions. Question is, does positions pay enough? Okay? Because after I got a family. Now, in addition to what I just said, it became clear to anyone with a brain that if you're living in America in 1840s, 50s, and 60s, so you're going to have two generations, A and B. The older generation, the current generation, is all German-speaking. They love to hear a guy give a speech, a, a Jewish speech in German, with a little bit of Hebrew thrown in, and that's in the other. But their kids are growing up in America, and the kids are not going to speak German, they're going to speak English. As was the case in my generation, when the parents spoke Yiddish, we all grew up with English. So, you know, I can listen to a guy give a speech in Yiddish. I like it. My kids won't understand a word of it. You see what I'm saying? 
And so people, in order to um, be a success in the American rabbinate at all, Orthodox conservative reform, you basically had to be good in speaking German, also good in speaking English. It wasn't so easy for these guys to pick it up, but those who did, did. But a guy like our hero, a highly educated fellow, so if he can learn French, Italian, German, this and the other, if he made his business to master English, he could master English, and he did do so. So now you have a guy that is the most qualified rabbi in North America. What do I mean by that? Rabbi Rice in Baltimore was not an educated person. He was a Talmud Chacham. No, he had no secular education at all. He's a yeshiva guy. He was a very fine person. He was a very uh, honest person. He was a speaker like you find yeshiva people being speakers. He wasn't taught and practiced in the oratory and all the fancy shtick. You know, that's not how he was. He was a blunt yekka, you know? He had the yekkish virtues and the yekkish vices. Black is black, white is white. I like you, I don't like you. You're Michal Shabbos, get the hell out of here. You know, that kind of thing. That's, that's who he was. Our hero was very from, but very cultured. He can speak in different languages. He knows Charles Dickens and Goethe and all the other business. The Italian stuff as well. He knows European culture cold. And he also knows shots. He knows postcards. That you didn't have in America at all. At least not that I'm aware of, and I I know pretty well. What he had in America at that time was a bunch of third, fourth-rate rabbis who were phony balonies. These are the first wave of the reform. Who were guys who spent like a month or two in yeshiva here or there were kicked out, or something like that, and to lose their element. But you come to America, you're already a macher. It's the truth. I'm not being rhetorical. And so this is the world in which our hero finds himself. And he will spend the rest of his life in the United States of America, which is 18 years. Because they say he'll die in his 50s, he won't be that old. So there's a guy who comes here, uh, let me see, almost 40. Let's say pretty much 40 years old, 39. And he'll be here from the age of 40 to the late 50s. What? Middle years. That's who he is. He's already got a family. He has three boys and a girl. That's what it is. Now you're talking about what's a rabbinical career in the United States of America such as it was 1850s and 1860s. Well, it's a, a fluid situation. As I said before, a ton of German Jews were pouring into this country. In 1830, there were about maybe 10,000 Jews in the whole U.S. By 1870s, it was a quarter of a million. So it was a real flood. Jewish communities were popping up everywhere. There was no chinuch. There was no rabbanim, really. It was in the hands of the Baal Everything went to hell in the handbasket. And that's how it goes. And then our hero comes in, and everybody knows that he knows his stuff, but it's not necessarily what people want to hear. And he was, despite all of his culture, a from guy. And so, if he became a rabbi, he would. He was always popular as a speaker. He had the gift of the gab, and I mean that as an orator. Um, a guy like him would speak every Shabbos, and on other occasions as well. He knows how to give a nice speech at a wedding, and at a bris, and a bar mitzvah, and a funeral. I don't know if Rabbi Rice was good at that stuff. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't. I, I don't know enough of. I don't, we have enough information to get about. But he doesn't sound to me like the type of person, you know, you invite to give a speech at, at, at your parents' anniversary. 
But Ilway was exactly that type of guy, right? He, he had many talents. Now, first he was in New York, but then he had the problem that American, you know, uh, synagogues didn't pay that well because uh, they're not communal synagogues, they're shuls, and they're all competing with each other. And the Jews at the time, I'm talking about the 1850s, were at the very beginning of the process of making money. 20 years later, all these German Jews had serious money. <clears throat> 1850s, they're just at the beginning, and they have small businesses or peddling or this, that, and the other. And so they're hoarding the money, you know what I mean? And it was a problem. It was very materialistic. In the 1850s and 60s and 70s, the American Jews, by and large, were mamish worshipping the golden calf. I mean, that's what it was. Financial success was everything. Because this country um, had the following attraction, the following uh, non-attraction. You came to America, nobody gave you anything, but nobody asked you for anything. You were like no taxes almost. It was a pure capitalism. There were no labor unions. You made something, you made it. You lost it, you lost it. You went bankrupt to hell with you, you know? You can drop dead with your family. And that's what it was. It's like Saddam. Uh, but, you know, the young Jews came here and they said, I'll take my chance. And, you know, a lot of guys, let's put it this way. Let's say you're 15, 20 years old, 25 years old. You go into a business, you go bankrupt. You move somewhere else, <laughs> you start another business. You go bankrupt. Eventually, so first you start in Baltimore, you go bankrupt. Then you move to Pittsburgh. Then you move to Detroit. Finally, you end up in Buffalo. In Buffalo, you make money. You know, that's what people did. Or New Orleans or whatever it is. Now, I know it sounds funny to say like that, but that was the rip-roaring economic um, <clears throat> jungle or fascinating frontier that was the USA in the 1850s and 60s. The question is, what about the Yiddish kite? Okay. Now, it was now in 18... When he came in the 1850s, this one, the reform movement in this country was really starting to take root. But there were two types of reformers, A and B. There were, you, you might call the, the, the ideological principled ones and the opportunistic ones. The principled ones were Mamash Peshitta. They want to change the Jewish religion. Um, they want to uh, abolish this and that and the other, introduce this and that and the other. And uh, they plowed ahead. That was not too popular. Not at the beginning. Not so many people were interested in that kind of approach. On the other hand, there were a lot of these, uh, what's the right word, phony baloney types. People who were sort of from, sort of not from, they might introduce a little change here, a little change there. That was very popular. And those were the biggest destroyers. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? Those are the ones that caused the most trouble, like Isaac Mayer Wise in Cincinnati. Now, our hero, when he came to America, most of these other rabbis, he like recognized either personally or their type from the old country. And he considered himself, most of them to be salvageable. Now, he was wrong, but he considered them salvageable. And he figures that he buddies up with them and shows some respect, even though he could kill them in learning and all that. Maybe he could exercise a good influence on them. So in other words, he wasn't a Hersheyan type. Not in that regard. He should have been, shouldn't have been, who knows? I mean, it's a very complicated question. But this is who he was. And anyway, you know, there's a theory, catch more flies with honey. Uh, 
Perhaps so. And as a result, he had a very interesting but frustrating career throughout the 1850s and 60s. Because wherever he came, he tried to fix things up. Mikvah, Kashos, Shabbos, you name it. Wherever he went, it was uphill battle. Theoretically, they all believed in Mikvah, but Lemai said they didn't. Theoretically, they believe in Shabbos, but Lemai said everybody worked on Shabbos. They felt they had to. It was ancient golden calf. And he, Kashos, all the rest of it. So all those jokes that I heard when I was a kid, Mamash applied to him. There's a, there's a famous joke from yesteryear in which, you know, a rabbi comes to a show as a tryout. He says, what should I talk about? I'll talk about Shabbos. Oh, don't talk about Shabbos. Nobody keeps Shabbos. Talk about Kash. Oh, nobody keeps kosher. Talk about Tyrus. Oh, nobody keeps Mikvah. What should I talk about? Talk about Judaism. You see? So that really happened to him. He was in, the, uh, I forget where, maybe in New Orleans. And we'll see later on he ended up there as one of his many places. And he spoke every week about Shabbos. Because he wasn't a phony. He was the opposite of a phony. He spoke about, now, mind you, he spoke eloquently, wittily. He had humor. He knew all the tricks of good speaker. But he spoke about Shabbos. <laughs> you see? And the president of Shul is famous. I came to him and said, the son writes it. He said, listen, Rabbi, we love you. And we're going to keep you forever. And we think the world about you. And we know you got to give us hell about Shabbos. We recognize that. And we agree to that. But we can't all do that. So listen, don't bring it every week. How about once a month? Once every two months? Right? Just remind us that we're sinning. And that'll be fine. Not every week. <laughs> That's a very honest kind of zah. And by the way, it's a madrega, isn't it? Not so madrega. You know, I can't keep Shabbos all the time. But I acknowledge I should. And same thing across the board. He didn't mind... You know, his son said he didn't mind giving a speech. Uh, you know, if the women don't make it, then uh, they'll die b'shas later. I mean, that's a very blunt kind of speech. Who would even give it today? You know, so he was not a phony at all. But as I said before, he was a very fine speaker. And as a result, you know, um, people were willing to take it. Now, the great problem in the 19th century in America, and of course hindsight is 2020, is that nobody thought about making yeshiva. <laughs> Let me use modern language. If he knew what we knew today, he would get off the boat, move to New York, and say, I'm starting yeshiva even with one guy. Eventually two guys, eventually three guys, eventually five and ten and twenty and so forth. And I'm going to put all my kochas in the yeshiva, and he could do it, because he could teach Shasa Postkim. And I know it wouldn't be easy, and money-wise, I, I recognize that. But then you'd see Paris. You see? Then you see Paris. For some reason, this was not the model that anybody grasped on. They used the rabbinic model, the shul rabbi model. That was the wrong model. This is true of Orthodox Judaism in America in the 19th century, and it was true of American Orthodox Judaism in the 20th century. As long as they used the rabbi model, not the yeshiva model, it was a failure. Um, there's a famous speech by William Jennings Bryan called The Cross of Gold. I remember when she said, now he was, Bryan, 
was a champion of the of the agriculturists. He said, if you uh, make the farmers survive and the cities destroyed, the cities will rise again, machmas the farmers. But if you kill the farmers and keep the city, the cities will die, they'll wither away because they need the food. So, same way, if you if you burned down every shul in America and they kept the yeshivas, the graduates of the yeshiva would rebuild shuls. <laughs> but if you destroy the yeshivas and keep the shuls, the shuls would be empty. But again, that's something that's clear to us today with hindsight. But for one reason or another, it was not the case in the 19th century. So a guy like him, I mean, that's what the, you know, in, in, in hindsight, that's what they should put all their efforts into. Because eventually, after a couple of years, you have a few Talmudim, and they'll join you, and then they'll help the cause, and eventually can build a organization. You know, you know what I'm saying. But instead, he was a devotee of the other model. He's a very smart person, so I, I like to think that he probably had a dream they would end up in a community and be Maslich there. Day schools he made, but day schools <clears throat> mean, meaning elementary. So he made day schools wherever he was, with English and Hebrew. But it only goes up to a certain age. So it's a bracha Um I like to think that a guy like him, who was very capable of hope, would hope, they would build up a day school, eventually make it a high school, and eventually make a yeshiva. But he was only 15, 18 years in America, and he moved from community to community because he always was too honest and got into fights with everybody. I mean, in the best way, he wasn't a cantankerous person. It's not who he was. But he was principled. And being principled was a kiss of death in the world run by these little Balabatisha presidents of shuls. Each one was a little dictator, a little Hitler in his own shul. And he had the knowledge of a pig. So in that environment, it's very hard to be a successful rabbi. Although he made a good shot of it. And he was a very impressive guy. Um, he was, as I said before, an excellent speaker. And his son tells a wonderful story that, you know, I always say will never be heard of again. Um, <laughs> will never be heard of again. Um, because, um, let me see if I can find it over here. It's a wonderful story where it happened in Syracuse in the 1850s. The late 1850s. And it was Yom Kippur. Here, I want to read it to you. Um, it was in, in, I'm reading now. It was Yom Kippur. The synagogue was packed with worshippers. The Muslim Chazan had finished. Mincha Neil had already been read all too hurriedly. And the Broadway day was still there. You know, I had that problem in my show once, believe it or not. There was a certain Baal Muslim, I won't say who. It went too fast. I mean, the Neil. And it was a problem. But anyway, uh, and there you are. You finished. It was like 20 minutes to go. They didn't even give it. Bad timing. But that's who the guy was. So that's happened in 1859 in Syracuse. The congregation was becoming restless. And some seemed about to leave. My father, known as our hero, mounted the pulpit and began by saying that although he had already spoken that day, he would take the liberty. Let me One second here. Let me find it. He would take advantage of the hurry of the Chazanim to say a few words more to them. Notice he'll, he'll say a last few words in the remaining time for chauffeur before they should blow the chauffeur. Relating an amusing and a strange medrash, 
He immediately had the attention of the congregation, and he continued on in this pleasant vein, befitting the hour, until, noticing the three stars twinkling in the heavens, he concluded, with best wishes for all, at the hope that they would soon break their fast well, that all would be here the year following, none missing. He had hardly concluded when, as if oblivious of the time and place, the audience in the synagogue broke out in a thunder of applause <laughs> and shouts of, Go on, continue! Can you believe it? It took another word from the rabbi to recall to them the realization that they were in a shul, that they had fasted for 24 hours and so on, and then the chauffeur sounded. Now, Rabot side, that's the last time that's ever going to happen. Okay? What does it show you? That is a, as far as I'm concerned, that's like selling ice to the Eskimos, you know? <laughs> right? Yeah, if you can do that, you can sell coals to Newcastle. If you can do that, if you can keep the Balabatim there, at the end of Yom Kippur, especially in those days, uh, the guy was a fantastic speaker, meaning he knew how to catch the attention of the audience. Um, and indeed, the little that I've read, and I know some of his speeches, uh, he was very good. He, he knew what, uh, I mean, he, he knew he knew the business. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, he, he started out, this in the 1850s, he started out first in New York, then he was in Philadelphia, and this place, and that initial, and that He ended up in Syracuse, and then he got his big break in Baltimore, Maryland, where I am. The trouble is, he got, um, he became the rabbi of the uh, main show here, where Rabbi Rice had been fired from, or I said that wrong, Rabbi Rice had quit from 10 years earlier. But I'll tell you again, Rabbi Rice was uh, from Blunt. Everybody knew he's as honest as days long. Nobody had any claims other than that. But he wasn't a turn on to a lot of Balabatim. Maybe because he was too from, you know, he set too high a standard for them. Um, our hero was just as from, but he had a pleasant manner. He was a, a social type of guy. He would visit with the Balabatim. He liked to tell a joke. He realized he was a smart cookie. He realized there's a lot of people you can influence by being friends with them rather than just haranguing them from the pulpit or giving a shear. Although he did give a shear, then he did harangue them from the pulpit. And that's just an insight. You know, we all know if you get if somebody's in the rabbi business, if you make a shear, you have a couple people, you turn into a stickle social occasion, you can be mashpi on them. I know rabbis myself, in the South especially, they influence the Balabatim in the right way by going fishing with them and stuff like that. So, it's a, you know, <laughs> I can't exactly see the Chassidish say, I'm going fishing tomorrow. But you know what I mean? Okay? And so he was that kind of guy. And, um, therefore, that show that got rid of Rabbi Rice and had a reform guy or two in the middle took him. Unfortunately for him, it was at a bad moment in the history of Baltimore, Maryland and of the United States of America. Because 1860... 1850-1960 is when the Civil War was about to fall apart. You know, America was about to fall apart. And all hope was going to break loose. And um, it was a city full of tensions. See? And the big question, of course, as we all know, was should you go to war over slavery? Not are you in favor of slavery, but should you go to war over slavery? The country in the United States at that time and Baltimore which is a border state, Maryland, 
was um, full of three types of people, A, B, and C. On the one hand, you had the um, the Southerners who believed L'Chachila in slavery. On the opposite, you had the abolitionists who said, let the whole country be torn apart, no matter what, slavery is such an evil. They had a point, a famous Garrison, William Lloyd Garrison, of the newspapers and the others. He said, I don't care, tear up the Constitution. Hell with it. Slavery is, is uh, what you're doing to human beings is unconscionable. Then you had the people in the middle who said like this, I myself don't hold of slavery. I think it's an evil. But it's here, and I want the country to fall apart. So let's hope, over the course of time, the situation will be ameliorated. Uh, I think many Jews in Baltimore were like that, many non-Jews. That was the prevailing sentiment. These were called the Unionists, you understand? And uh, as we all know, the um, Republican Party won the election that year, Abraham Lincoln. And this made a lot of tensions. And um, as soon as Lincoln was elected, which was in November of 1860, not a single Southern state voted for him. But he won anyway. This freaked out the South. They said the North is going to come in and abolish slavery. Which is not true, but that's what they said. And Lincoln says it's not true, but that's what they said. And so immediately, the state starts seceding one after the other. The president at that time was James Buchanan. He didn't know what to do. So he made a national fast day. We should all dive to save the country. Um, save the Union. It was too late, but that's what he did. I'm talking about January 1861. Have a national fast day, that means everybody should go to the church or shul and have a ceremony. These people are patriotic. They all did that. And they were praying in the shul in the synagogue to save the Union. What they really meant was prevent the secession peacefully. Or else, or else, let the South go and it shouldn't be a war. It's a complicated politics. You see what I'm saying? It's a complicated politics. And um, so our hero, you can, it's online. He gave a whole big speech. And he was from the Unionists. He said, I guess, I don't hope for slavery, but don't break the country up over it. The abolition are wrong. After all, in the Bible, you have slavery. Um, so you see, slavery per se is not a bad institution. Of course, what the Torah has in mind is slavery is different than the Negro slavery that they had in the South, which was, you know, uh, toxic. But still, you don't break the country over it. And he said, look what a great country we have. We're making it fall apart over nothing. I'm just giving you this for a piece of his style. And he said, you know, when Claw Israel was uh, in trouble, the base of Misha wasn't uh, going to be destroyed. They said, Moshe Rabbeinu went to the um, Yermio, went to the Mars Machpela to pray to the Kibriyavos. Save us. Your children, your grandchildren, your progeny. Save us. Eh, we just did this in the keynotes not long ago. Right? I say to Americans, go to Kerovas. Go to George Washington's Kever. Go to Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and so forth. The founders of the country. Who knew about slavery and weren't crazy about it, but held the union above all. See? And pray at the graves of Washington these others to save their progeny. Now, I want to tell you something. That's a good speech, you get what I'm saying? From an oratorical point of view. You can agree or disagree with this point of view. And today, that'd be politically incorrect because today in America, 
And uh, I understand why. I mean, justifiably, the abolitionist position is the position. Uh, I, I get it. But I'm talking about at that time. I'm talking about at that time. Now, the result was, and by the way, the reform rabbi in Baltimore, and it was an extreme reform rabbi, rabbi Einhorn, was an abolitionist. See, he's a hero. In fact, he preached against the slavery so strong that they were going to kill him. He had to run away to Philadelphia. It's a very famous episode in American history. Um, Rabbi Einhorn knew how to learn, but was an apikaris gummer from the extreme reform. And um, as I said before, it was a policy for Rabbi Ilway, our hero, to try to buddy up with these other rabbis, me must be on them. But a guy like Einhorn, you couldn't do it. And there, again, I'm going to give you an example of the um, wonderful oratorical style. Um, he has a, a, a story here also. It's 1850-1960 that they had a meeting of the Hebrew Benevolent Society, which today we call the Federation, like the Free Loan or something like that. The Hebrew Benevolent Society. And um, the um, they're going to have a banquet. And they weren't attendants. And so our hero was the rabbi of the biggest shul in Baltimore, the Lloyd Street Synagogue, the Baltimore Hebrew Congregation. He's invited. See, he just saw one of the people there who's a member of the board of the Federation, the free loan. And he said, uh, what's the schedule? When do we wash? When do we make a mosi? He said, there's no washing. Uh, the rule was issued that's prohibited to do Natilsi Dime and a mosi. You know what I just said? The, the, the board of directors of the organization, the Federation, Osserd, Natilzi Diamond, and Bircha Samoz and all the rest of it. What the heck is that? He said, no. Under the influence, this was the uh, suggestion of Rabbi Einhorn. Look what a schmo he was, right? Look at that. You're Osserding as a, in a Jewish thing. It's bad enough if the food's not kosher. Huh? You're going to say it's forbidden? Like we say today, it's forbidden to wear yarmulke. It's forbidden to make a bracha. What are you nuts? Now he got so peeled over this that he went to his show and gave a whole big speech, which you can find online somewhere. And he basically, he basically said like this: I let you know this is a good line. Remember the Gemara says in Megillah, why did these Jewish people deserve to be destroyed? Because they ate at the Surah of Achishverish. <laughs> he said, anybody who goes to this meal, it's not a Mesudos of Russia. It's like Achishverish. That a Jewish organization would prohibit somebody from making the Tilsi Dime as a matter of policy? You know, say, what are you, nuts? This is disgusting. I, I'm not going. I will condemn anybody who goes. Well, he was a good speaker. So all of a sudden, all the invitations fell apart. And the Federation freaked out. And they had to back off. And Rabbi Einhorn was angry at him and blah, blah, blah. But isn't that a good line? Even just a good um, talker. Now, um, because of this speech, and I repeat, this was done in January of 61, 1861. Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated on March 4th of 1861. The feelings in this country were crazy over the secession and the slavery issue. Now, the South was stupid beyond belief. If you know the history 
of the outbreak of the Civil War, it's all the fault of the South. And all of all these extremists are called the fire eaters. They're just idiots. They thought they could take on the North. They played into the answer Abraham Lincoln by firing on Fort Sumter. They were just stupid beyond belief. Okay, let it be. Um, but the Jews in the South went along with this. Because if everybody's waving a Confederate flag and saying down with Abraham Lincoln up with the South, and you're Jewish, you live in Richmond or Charleston or wherever, you're going along. So when it got in the papers that a big rabbi um, had made a speech which would be regarded as pro-slavery. It wasn't exactly pro-slavery, but you hear what I'm saying. Oh, he's a hero in the South. And so the Jewish community in New Orleans, which is in the South, said, we want you, we're going to offer you the job. We will pay you triple what you're getting in Baltimore. Well, triple what you're getting in Baltimore. And Baltimore was not bad, such a bad salary. And so he took it. I think it was a mistake, but, you know, he's him. Um, and so he went to New Orleans. Right when the Civil War is breaking out. So this is a dramatic change. Here he is, middle Confederacy. The Civil War is raging. Um, and he finds a Jewish community, German-Jewish community, in which officially it's Orthodox, Nobody keeps anything. The intermarriage is out of control. Everything was out of control. The Gittin, the Kedushin, the Yvonne's Kasubis, you know, everything was out of control. It was a Corbin. And he said, okay, we'll roll up our sleeves. Now he came in with a fund of goodwill because he's been a pro-slavery, they said. And he was talented. He had a good speak, good speaker. He was a very honest person, a Yashua's person. And so he started to work on it. And he had a certain degree of success because um, he was a good organizer and um, he told it like it was, but like I say, in a very uh, charming, uh, good oratorical way. And he started to build up the Kashos and, and the Shabbos and all the rest of it. That's a fact. It's very famous, his son wrote, that when he came there, there wasn't a single sukkah, but within a year there were 40 or 50 sukkahs. Um, Kashos uh, tremendously spread. Although they had trouble with the, the, the families that had slaves because the slaves wouldn't eat pork. Uh, that's what it was in the old days. Mikvah, you know, he's, he's working at it. Now, New Orleans is a very unusual place in the Civil War. I don't know how many of you are Civil War buffs. I doubt it. But the Civil War went from 1861 to 1865. Early in the war, early in 1862, the Union made a surprise attack and captured New Orleans. So while the whole South was the South, New Orleans, which is like one of the main ports in the Gulf of Mexico, as you know, early in the war, was captured by Admiral Farragut, and the Union held it. Now, the people in the South, in New Orleans, hated it, and they were under military occupation by the North for four, for 63, for about four years. Uh, 62, 63, 64, and a half of 63, you know, three and a half years. And um, uh, it was like being, you know, they regarded it like being occupied by the Nazis or something. Okay? The Union wasn't taking nothing off anybody. The general who captured New Orleans was General Benjamin Butler, who didn't like Jews, by the way. And he basically said, any Southerner gives me trouble, I'm going to hang him. And any woman that this is a Union soldier, treat like a prostitute. 
and he stole things. You know, he was a harsh ruler. Although, to be perfectly honest, he cleaned up the city. He got rid of the crime. He physically cleaned up the mess, you know, the, the garbage. It's a, it's a whole part. I don't want to go into that. Obviously, it's a, <laughs> the Union Army governed New Orleans better than the New Orleans people governed New Orleans from the physical point of view. But it's a very unusual situation. And our hero is now finding himself as an Orthodox rabbi in a city which is southern but occupied by the Union Army. Isn't that just interesting? Uh, and right away, if you know the borders and all the rest of it, New Orleans became a major headquarters of illegal smuggling and uh, funny dealings economically because it was occupied by the North, but still part of the South. And it was illegal to trade cotton with the South, but they did it anyway, and they got special permits. And the U.S. Treasury Department spe sent special agents. The special agents got corrupted. It was a heck of a place in um, in the Civil War. And in the middle of all this is the Jewish community, and they're trying to make heads meet. A lot of them were crooks like the Glamour crooks. A lot of them were not. And our hero, a lot of times, had to get Jews out of trouble with the authorities. Either they were too cozy with the South and the North didn't like it, or the other way around. Or smuggling things across the lines, because you can make a fortune smuggling things across the lines. This is why General Grant kicked the Jews out of the Department of Mississippi in 1862. But New Orleans was not part of that. It was a separate chalik. Our hero soon became known to the Union generals as a very honest and straight person, and they had respect for him. I find it remarkable. I remember reading once, I can't remember where, even Butler, they didn't like the Jews. There was a whole story about a guy in Baltimore who got arrested, they accused him of being disloyal to the Union. And without going through the details, they had to get a letter from Illouye, you know, saying that he's not disloyal to the Union, Freedom Wall. And Illouye went to the general, I think it was Butler, and he said, I know this guy, he's not disloyal to the Union. Then Butler wrote to Abraham Lincoln. And he said something along the lines, this uh, reverend gentleman, no, this rabbi, this clergyman, as I know him, is incapable of uttering a falsehood. <laughs> so if he said, that's pretty good. And Abraham Lincoln says something like, wow, Butler said it, it must be true. And they eventually let the guy go. The guy after Butler was General Banks. He was a famous American political figure in the 19th century. He'd been Speaker of the House. Uh, and he really liked Rabbi Illouye. And a lot of times, if anybody got arrested or whatever, he could get him out, if the guy was honest. If the guy was not honest, you know, you know, since you know him, use this, uh, you know, like Hasidic style. You know what I mean? Use your hashpah uh, with them uh, to get this out of me. That man, he wouldn't do that. He was a Yashrish type of guy. Illouye. He was a very Yashrish type of guy. Won't get involved in illegal stuff. But if somebody genuinely needed it, some guys were arrested and their families went destitute, um, he would work and get them out. There was a lot of times he went to the general, Yilma Valila, very, uh, what's the right word, uh, courteously, all the rest of it, and eventually got through, and the general would, 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 let, would let the guy off. Uh, so it's this very interesting time that he was there. And while he was there, um, he tried to build the Yiddishkeit, but he, this is the problem in the 19th century. You always have Baal Bakhtim that don't like you. Plus, you immediately form 
an anti-rabbi society, if you're honest with the Shaykhtim and the Chazanim and that kind of stuff. The Shaykhtim in America stunk, you can imagine. Most of the rabbis, quote-unquote rabbis, weren't really rabbis. They didn't know Shaykhtim one from the other. So if a guy has a knife and he cuts the animal to the neck, he's a Shaykhtim. A guy like Eloi knew Yeridea. And so he came to the town, he said, I want to see the Shaykhtim. Is it Shaykhtim of Shama Shabbos? Does he live a clean life? Does he know a pegima? <laughs> if he saw one, does he know anything about kashrus? If not, get out of here. So, obviously, in his career, every time he came across an unqualified shechet, he had rid of him. You immediately made an enemy. He's going to work Yom to, to take you down. Moyle, shechet, chazen, you see what I'm saying. And so, the result was that he also built up enemies even though he had a lot of fans. Uh, I want you to understand, we're talking about a person who turned people from from his speeches. That's uh, that's that's pretty remarkable. You understand? I mean, that is that is pretty remarkable. Um, you don't find it too often. Uh, he, had a, he had a story, I think it was, um, let me see here. Listen to this. A lady, very prominent, wealthy. I think this was New Orleans. Uh, very prominent and wealthy, who, from being a hater of everything Jewish or anything that bore Jewish stamp, through his sermons became a very pious mother in Israel. Kept a strictly kosher house, observed the Sabbath in the most orthodox fashion, etc., um, etc. Et and she asked my father at the beginning of the hot season, which sets in early in the South since she lived a great distance from the synagogue and could not walk it in the summer months, I guess too hot, the question was, should she just not go to shul? Or, she, or she, can she go to shul in the streetcar? This is the 19th century. So we're talking about horse and wagon streetcars. And the question is, you understand, uh, can you use it on Chavez? Um, on Chavez. So you're not riding. You're getting on a streetcar. This is riding anyway. Now, what would you say? Basically, what she thinks is like this. I need a shot in the arm to hear your sermon every Shabbos to keep from. But I can't do it without, you know, without uh, getting you on, on the bus. I remind you, it's before the electricity, before the cars. So bus means uh, a horse and wagon, you know, uh, a horse-drawn streetcar. That's a very interesting question. He advised her that she should attend the synagogue. She could ride in the streetcar but should not make any visits after service, just ride to the synagogue and return again to her home as soon as the services were over. Isn't that interesting? It reminds you of the conservative thing in 1950. One minute. Um, though ridiculed by this, by many, though ridiculed for this by many of her friends, she observed the condition most faithfully. Now, the son writes, the, the grounds for mission are not set down in writing, but there are those that will suggest themselves to the Chacham Talmud Chacham. And of course, the other reason, the principal reason, is he's over here. Well, she's so recent at Baal's Tuba, he didn't want to remain away for the admonitions for so long a period. Here, let me uh, switch the thing here. Hold on for a second. Here, let me see here. Um, I switch it. I'm going to continue. He said, it must also be borne in mind that it was not necessary, let me see here, to pay the fair and money. The companion tickets which could be bought beforehand. Okay? 
This is before the electricity, as they said before. And so, um, uh, let's just think about this for a second. Because he's poskening a real Shiloh, right? But he was a Johnny on the spot. He's, he knows what he's doing. And uh, he said, this woman's Yiddish kind of depends on this. Well, I, I, I'm surmising here. I'm just surmising. What's she doing wrong? The, the horses are going anyway. Um, her weight's not going to make a difference. Carrying? Did she carry the ticket? It's, say it's a Carmelis. It's like a Drabon. Maybe told to do with a Shinor. You see where I'm coming from? I'm sure he didn't simply say, Go be Mechashav. I know he didn't do that. He had a Cheshman. And this shows you what a practical guy was. And it shows you what an effective speaker he was. Because she was basically saying, Listen, there's no base Yaakov. She's a Balchua. Her whole Yiddish, you know, her whole Yiddish guy comes from hearing his speeches once a week. That's just interesting. <laughs> right? That's just interesting. Uh... Eventually, and by the way, he was there during the Civil War. Uh, I remember he they used to send him Shilas. Um, some of these things are famous. You know, what he used for an esrig? There was no esrig, so he said, use a lemon, but don't make a bracha. It was a wartime. A lot of these southern cities were besieged, uh, blockaded. It's, it's a, quite a time in American history. And so he used to get all these interesting Shilas. Um, but eventually, he, something took him down. Because even in New Orleans, we had such a big success, eventually took him down. And what took him down was uh, uh, a question about um, Amoyle and Brismila. He had a lot of intermarriage. I mean, a lot. That's a lot of men marrying Gaisha women. And for whatever reason, it happened from time to time that the Jewish father wants to regard his son as Jewish, whether he is or not. And if we want to give him a bris. Nothing else. They're not going to keep Shabbos, Kashas, nothing. The kid's not going to go and be Maguire, go to, to a mikvah, nothing. The mother's a Christian, Christian. The father, you're dealing with German, Balabatish, and guy, they don't know nothing. In their mind, if the kid has a bris, that makes him Jewish. Now, our hero was strongly opposed to this. He's trying to stop intermarriage. He's trying to stop confusion these kids will think they're Jewish. You know, he was too yashras of a type of guy. And he told the Molim, there were three Moles in, in, in uh, New Orleans, a very famous case. It's during the Civil War in 1864. While the country was raging in a war, the Jews had to run a little spat. And he said, don't, uh, don't uh, circumcise any children of these mixed marriages. A guy did, and he put like a harem on He said, you know, I disqualify you from being a Mole. The guy said, the hell with you. Mamish, and he started a whole uh, thing in the city. The rabbi can't make you do it's America, can't make you do nothing. And the long and the short of it is, he was fired. Right? Enough of a machlokes rose out of this, they kicked him out. So the bad moral won, and the good rabbi lost. That's America for you. Now, Ilwi was really angry, as you can imagine. He wrote to Europe, okay, uh, to the Big rabbis in Germany. What do you think? Should they? Am I wrong in in, in, in ostracizing the guy and firing him? Do you think it's right to circumcise children whose mothers are not Jewish? The whole thing. And what's very interesting is, 
for, and it's in his book, the Milchemus Hashem. His son published some of his writings after his father died. And um, first, he wrote to uh, in German. It's all in German to uh, the Israelite, which was the newspaper of Rabbi uh, Marcus Lehman. That was from paper, and Marcus Lehman backed him. Uh, Marcus Lehman was not a major Talmud Chacham. But uh, he, he wrote Samson Rafael Hirsch. And if you look in the Hirsch book, you know, the article published Shemesh Marpe, right? That's uh, the Kuhlman family, I think, uh, collected the Hirsch, uh, you know, uh, uh, Charles and Tubas, let's call it that way, in German otherwise. If you're interested in this, you can get an article published, Shemesh Marpe. Let's call those Charles and Tubas of Hirsch. If you look at Simon Ches, I believe that this is um, um, translating to Hebrew from the German. That's the case. This was the case. Halachically, you can. You're allowed to. Uh, Malakid for purpose of 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 Geras Ulam Yesh Shikulim Ritzinim Hamachayim Shalolish Tamish Badger Zebanini Done, but there are strong reasons in this case not to do it. I won't read the long thing; take up time. But if you're interested, you can read it in the Shemesh Marpe Simanun Ches. And so, Seyes Ravel Hirsch backed him. Uh, that's pretty good. It didn't prevent him from being fired. Hildesheimer. Or the Shiloh was really the big halachic authority, I would say. Now, at that time, he wasn't in um, Germany. He was in Hungary. But he was a German rabbi. And, and as a matter of fact, he was a Rosh Hashiva in um, Eisenstadt. And he backed him. And so he could say, look at this. Now, I'm going to tell you something funny. One guy didn't agree with him. But he didn't write it publicly in... Um, in the newspaper or anything. Uh, the people who backed him wrote in the from newspaper, the Israelite, uh, Hirsch, um, um, Lehman, and uh, Hildesheimer. These are three big names. 1864. Rav who wrote the Drishat Siam, he's the original founder of Zionism before Zionism existed, he was a Talmud Rabbi Kibager. He was an eccentric guy. He's the guy who wanted to start the Karim Pesach over. You've heard that before, right? Bismarck is there. He's the one who won Rothschild to buy Israel and make a state of Israel right then and there in the 1830s. He came up with this whole theory, but I'll say to his credit, he didn't publish this. He wrote this as a correspondence with his real Hildesheimer, where he said, you know, really, it's a good thing you should maul as many people as possible. Av Hamon Goyim Satiro. It's the mission of Claudius Israel to try to bring as many people as he can close to the Yishkite. And everyone, everyone wants to get a British, even if it doesn't mean that they're converting, it's a d- step in the right direction. Which is a very weird way of thinking. He was a big Talmud Chacham, but a weirdo. And his whole correspondence is in the Shubas of Hildesheimer. It's kind of interesting. I'll say again, it's, it's a weird, but he was a Talmud Chacham, no question about it. You know? And Hildesheimer rejected it. And so it's like a 10, 20 pages back and forth. It's kind of interesting. And um, it's in 
if if you're interested, uh, some of you listening are synagogue rabbis. You need to research. You have a good speech. In in uh, two twenty nine, Simon Reishchov Tess, in Yordan, in the Chubas of Hildes Harvard, Reishchov Tess, and Reish Um There's even a guy who wrote an English article somewhere, and he argued this idea: since the father's Jewish, he's there a Kodesh, the kind of thing you hear today from the left wingers, which is baloney. But whatever. I mean, I, I I'm aware of what's the name. Uh, Rav, uh, the chief rabbi of Israel, what was his name? Uziel, who was a great scholar, a great Talmud He held from that also. We could give a talk about reactions of famous rabbis to the extremely widespread um, intermarriage business. Now, mind you, I'm not referring, this case was not talking about somebody taking a kid and mamash being beguired them in the context of a family becoming Jewish. That's a different story. I want to be clear about that. I'll give you an example of I me. Mean, let's say there's a guy, but for whatever reason, marries somebody who's not Jewish. Okay. And they let's say they have three children. Okay. And then, for whatever reason, they decide they're going to come from. Okay. And so, the woman in question says, I'm going to go through a process and convert to Judaism. Okay. And my children as well. Okay, um, and then we're going to be observant Jews. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Provided she's sincere and she satisfies a, a genuine basin and so on and so forth. Because he goes through the the rules and regulations. So what's wrong with that? Nothing. That was not the case over here. The case over here was the guy was married to a woman who's a Christian. The Christian woman had no intention of converting whatsoever. The child is going to be raised as a Christian. The father just wanted to have him a bris. It offended Illoui, his whole business. And uh, it just struck at his, yeah, he couldn't take it, you know? But it was a mistake. What do I mean when it was a mistake? He had a lot going for him over there. He allowed this to take him down. Now, who am I to challenge him as a hindsight? I'm just saying if you have the eyes on the prize, maybe you can work you're going to have X number of people that are intermarried in the place like New Orleans. He was too yashuous to think strategically and say, you know, let this guy do whatever he wants. Let me try to build up a school, build a yeshiva, make me turn New Orleans into something. He just wasn't thinking that way. And so he left her, and I think he went to St. Louis. Eventually he ended up in Cincinnati. And uh, this was in the 1860s. 1860s when the reform really started to take off. When the reformers marched very far to the left, and a lot of shoals start picking it up. 1870s when it became a tidal wave. Right? The 1880s, it wiped out the Orthodox. That's the story of American Jewry in the 19th century, among the German Jews. Our here was the wrong place at the wrong time. But he was too much of a straight shooter. In a way, how should I put it over here? Um, in a way, that kind of hurt his effectiveness to some degree because he had a lot of fans. And perhaps I shouldn't, you know, say, but if, if, if he would think more strategically, he let certain things go by or he could build something bigger and larger. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong about that. You know, I, I, I acknowledge that. Uh, 
Now, there's a his son, as I said before, later on, who was a doctor, was Shama Shabbos, uh, wrote about this. And um, he has a wonderful story of America in 1867. His father taking the train. Uh, it was the summer of 1867, I'm reading. My father had not been well for some time, but his physician ordered him away. He took a trip east, because I guess he was living in the Midwest to uh, go to Baltimore, Philly, in New York, visit old friends. We left Cincinnati on such and such a railroad, and we crossed the steamer in Parkersburg, West Virginia. The only train was the one which carried the, the B&O railroad laborers, who were all Irishmen, those rough guys, and distributed at various stations along the road. So he gets on the train, the only Jewish guys, full of Irish workers, we got into an ordinary box car with an aisle in the middle and wooden seats, two benches facing each other on either side of it. We found two vacant seats. So basically, the only two Jews in a, in, in a sea of non-Jews, one on one side and one on the other side. As soon as the train was underway, my father got up and took out his tefillin. Fill, his now, the son obviously felt very uncomfortable with this. Right? Because he, he hadn't slept at night or whatever, I don't know, whatever. And he rolled up his sleeve bend his arm and began to put on the throne. Look at this. As if divining he was about to pray, all the Irishmen, all the neighbors, those in the seat with him, everybody stopped smoking. They put their pipes down from the window. They ceased all conversation. But And all of those immediately behind in the front, the whole car and the next car, lapsed in the silence while he davened. And when he was through and took off his throne, then the pipes were relit, the conversation renewed. No, they give her a speck. You understand? They give her a speck. Um, and it goes to show you, and I don't care, you know, he didn't bother anybody. Um, and the son says, what a lesson of, what is it now? What a lesson of reverence. Where is it here? Uh... Do these laborers teach the sons and daughters of Israel? No, let's put it this way. If the train would have been full of, of Reformed Jews, they would say, how can you do this? You make a chil Hashem, putting on fill in a, a, a train car, calling attention, in fact, you're Jewish. These Catholic guys, these Irish guys, they give them respect. You know That's very interesting to the state of mind in America in, uh, in 1867. Now, as I said before, he had the virtues of his um, abilities, his resume, but he was flowing against the tide of history. The German Jews don't just want to have, you know, Avdev Karen Nikolay. The reform ideas are very popular. He himself, like Rabbi Rice in his way, by force of his personality, when he was in a community, could keep the people from. And this was what happened in the 19th century. But if the guy leaves, then all fault dissolves. And you ask yourself the question, how could it be that people were showing shoppers yesterday flipping are different today? People had a sukkah and everything yesterday completely say. That's a reflection of the fact that there's nothing solid underneath. It's just the personality of the individual rabbi. It used to be thought that the job of rabbis to provide this kind of personal business. Today, as I say before, we, we recognize... In the modern world, you need an institutional framework. Personal charisma is not enough. It has to be backed by institutional framework. So if there's a school system, 
yeshivas and this and that and the other, then the rabbi can just be the front end of all that. But if the rabbi himself with nothing behind him, then even if he's the most charismatic person in the world, as soon as he's gone, the charisma uh, disappears. And the Roshim of the charisma lasts five minutes. That's just a very interesting lesson from the historical perspective. And so the result was, he was a guy in his late 50s. Uh, he's still plugging away. As I say, he became rabbi in Cincinnati. That's where Isaac Mayer Wise was making the reform very big. The two men respect each other sort of. Well, I won't say he respected Wise, but he tried to be much better than him. And, uh, and he was, like I said before, he was able, at least from what I read, he was able to get across the idea, which is more than I can say for me, because you see what some of these guys are, jerks beyond belief. But he was a high-minded person, and he was into and people respected that. But he didn't succeed, as I said before, in creating a sheep or something like that, theological school, which he obviously could have done. I'll tell you again. When he came to America in the 1850s already, he had the ideas, the personality, the um, teaching ability, the charm to pull it off. But for some reason, it's not how people thought. And they put their faith in the rabbinate. And the rabbinate was not a good institution in the, in that kind of situation. Because it's highly limited and uh, very narrow. And uh, as they say before, it doesn't create an institutional uh, infrastructure. And nothing survives in modernity without an institutional infrastructure. You have an idea, you have to create an organization and uh, and you know people behind it. It's just what it is. Even dumb ideas, once you get an organization behind it, have a, a, a power. Good ideas, they don't have an organization behind it, they don't have a power. That's a... Listen, that's why they created the good and that sort of thing. I don't say they're successful. I don't say they're not successful. But it represents the fact that, you know, just a, a, a talk by itself is not enough. You need some sort of organization. You need a, a structure. Uh, and that's what happened. So, um, in the late 1860s, I think he had some kind of a, 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 an accident on a sled or something like that. And he got sick and never recovered. He died in 1871. He wasn't an old man. Uh, he was less than 60 years old. That was a big shame. Theoretically, he could have lived another 20, 25 years. Uh, at least. And maybe, you know, I'm serious now. I'm not being, uh, you know, uh, sentimental. Maybe a guy like him in the 1870s could have pulled it off and they would have made some kind of yeshiva. That is when Isaac Mayer Wise made the Hebrew Union College for the Reform. Maybe that would have stimulated him. He was. They were both from Cincinnati. He was a bar hockey. Um, American Jewry, to some degree, started to realize this in the 1870s, not before. And uh, in the 1880s, you know, they started the Jewish Theological Seminary, which was not something he would have done. And, you know, American Jewry made a lot of false steps before it started to get its foot right. And that's why we have such a big chasm between the two... L Halves of American Jewry, not halves. Two elements of American Jewry. On one hand, as I always say, you have a group that's doing dafi on me. On the other hand, they don't even know what the word daf means. Uh, the cultural chasm between two elements of American Jewry are extraordinary. I mean, really, it's two different worlds. 
which is a shame. Uh, but this has to do with the fact that the 19th century, from the Frumkite point of view, was wasted in American history. You just have to get over that. Okay? Uh, right or wrong? <coughs> Excuse me. It was wasted. And um, so it was the early 20th century. Unfortunately, life is of such a nature, a lot of things are only learned by trial and error. But when you do trial and error, there are carbonists. A lot of American Jews carbonists. So Rabbi Bernard Illway, Rabbi Dr. Bernard Illway, um, is a kind of a hero, but also a tragic figure. You know what I'm saying? Personally was heroic. And he had in him, in my mind, the qualities that Rabbi Rice did not have, by the way, to have made a, a leader of American Jewry, but it didn't come together. Some Isis Sutton, some stupid idiot, Moel, or Shochet, or whatever, could take a guy like this down. That shows you where America was holding <coughs> at that time. But his career is instructive when, um, to my mind, when the possibilities as well as the limitations of the Rabonis, especially when the Rabonis stands free on its own, without any support by it. If you see successful Rabonim today, it's because they got the structure of yeshivas and I don't know what behind that. It's not because their individual personality, because their individual personality would come and go and last only so long. I think that's a, a very interesting kind of uh, um, observation. And I love that story about the speech on Yom Kippur. You'll never hear that again. So, with that, I bid you all a good week. And I want to thank the Abramowitzes for sponsoring this. And I bid you a um, a good night. <laughs>